Hey, I'm Mason King, host of the IBJ Podcast. And before we get into this week's episode, I want to tell you about the newest podcast from IBJ Media called Off the Record with the Indiana 250. In each episode, IBJ Media CEO Nate Feldman talks with a different leader on the Indiana 250 list of the state's most influential leaders. They discuss their vision for Indiana's future, their experiences in business, and their advice for other aspiring entrepreneurs. New episodes are released on select Thursdays. So go subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast platform so you can never miss an episode. Just search the Indiana 250 off the record. Thanks. This is the IBJ podcast for the week of November the 6th, 2023, brought to you by Taft. I'm your host, Mason King. Welcome back to the podcast, everybody. I am a big fan of the mid-career pivot. I have done it myself a couple of times. You certainly hear people talk a lot about it, especially starting their own business, maybe a restaurant, maybe a microbrewery. Juliet Schmaltz nowadays hears from a lot of people who are impressed that she actually did it. In her mid-40s, she left her career as a medical doctor and anesthesiologist to start a company that produces whiskey. That company, called Fortune's Fool Whiskey, a nod to a line in a Shakespearean tragedy, debuted its first product a few weeks ago in Indiana stores, bars, and restaurants. It's called The Prelude. It's a 109-proof straight rye whiskey that has been aged nearly three years, which, yes, means that Schmaltz has had to wait nearly six years to see any revenue from a company she started in early 2018. In the meantime, there is another rye whiskey, a bourbon whiskey and a weeded bourbon whiskey sitting in barrels on the four-year plan. An Indianapolis native, Schmaltz is our guest on this week's edition of the podcast. I ask her what possessed her to leave a lucrative and respected profession to make spirits for a living. We also discuss how she brought herself up to speed in a fickle industry, determined how she would position her product, and funded what by necessity is a long-term startup process. Here's our conversation. It's my pleasure to welcome to the podcast, Juliet Schmaltz, CEO and founder of Fortune's Fool Whiskey. Juliet, thank you so much for making time today. Thank you so much for having me. So you are an Indiana native, is that correct? Yes. Okay, where did you grow up? I grew up on the south side of Indianapolis. Okay, so that means you went to Southport High School. I graduated from Southport High School, 1991. Great. Your parents named you Juliet. I'm assuming they knew what they were doing. People just don't accidentally name <laughs> their child Juliet. Was that a family name or were your parents like, we we definitely need to name our our daughter after a tragic heroine? <laughs> I believe, my mom might have to correct me on this, but I believe I was born on St. Julia's feast day and she liked Juliet better, so went with that. But she didn't like to do things conventionally because my brother's name is Mark, but we spell it with a C. And that's more of a French thing. And she she taught French at Arsenal Tech before she had kids. So high school French teacher, maybe that had a little bit to do with like a little bit different, more French sounding names, oh, even though it's not spelled in the French way. Yeah, right. I was about to say, yeah, Juliet is pretty common. Yeah. In, in France with the E-T-T-E ending. Okay. Did you grow up as Juliet or Julie? On my mother's side of the family, I was Juliet because we had an aunt. Ju- I had an aunt Julie that married into the family that made it a little bit easier to distinguish who they were talking to. But in general, with friends and at school, I was Julie. So instead of uh, going into uh, the theater as a Shakespearean actor, you decided to go to medical school. Yes, uh, not. Not one to stand up on stage and and belt it out to the back row. (laughs) (laughs) No. That's not my personality. Okay. All right. Um, What was appealing about medical school? I think I always grew up thinking I wanted to help people. And um, I was really good in school. I had great grades. I was a focused student when I needed to focus when it got a little bit more difficult in college. 
And people would always tell me, well, you could go to medical school. And I think it just kind of, you hear it enough and you're thinking, well, I want to help people. I can go to medical school. Let's give that a shot. Like It was as simple as that, fairly naive. Um, my first week of medical school was eye-opening. Most of the people in my class had family members or friends of family that they had already shadowed. And I just was like, here I am. <laughs> <laughs> Tell me about this doctor thing. Yes, exactly. Oh, that's, I was going to ask, yeah, if there's anybody in your family who's a doctor, no. a lot of time that's, what, that's how they get into it. No, it was kind of out of left field. And, you know, I figured it out, but had in, one idea of what I was going to do when I first started. And that, that changed a couple of times before I got to uh, anesthesiology. Yeah and, and yeah, and kind of what was the thinking there about being an anesthesiologist? I originally wanted to do sports medicine of some sort, orthopedics. And, you know, especially back in the 90s, it seemed like a boys club. Again, first week of med school, I followed an orthopedic surgeon and I was like, oh, this isn't my club. <laughs> uh, as much as I enjoy enjoy that still. Um, and then, so I, I got interested in pediatrics and what anesthesia pulled me away from pediatrics was with the um, acuity of things and the procedures. So like using my hands and thinking on the spot and you do something and you see immediate results. I, I got a little, I don't say bored, but I wasn't as interested in like giving someone a medication and then finding out two weeks, a month later, if it worked or not. I wanted a little bit more instantaneous reactivity to, yeah. to what, case, what I'm doing. Or in my case, if the person actually took the medication. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I'm yes. batting about 50% uh -huh. on that. Uh -huh. So, I mean, better to be in the OR making decisions uh, right there and, uh, and seeing instant results. Yes, which is kind of interesting because I remember going into medical school thinking that anesthesia se seemed terrifying, but... Again, the things that I found that I was terrified about, if I learn about it, I realize it's not that terrifying. You just It's just an, an unknown. And so once I learned about it, I enjoyed it. But I'm not an immediate result kind of person. I'm a very much a delayed gratification. I mean, if you think about well, med medical school in general, the process, you don't get your first job until you're in your 30s. And well, also whiskey, like not, <laughs> there's a lot of things in my life that yeah. is not immediate gratification, but something about anesthesia that I really like the hands-on. I love doing procedures. Okay. That was a big part of it. When did you first develop a taste for whiskey? And maybe more than just the normal I think, anesthesiologist. I think I was in residency. I can't remember. Um, I have some college girlfriends that... We all are whiskey um, fans, and I don't remember it, you know, back in, like, late college doing it. But at some point, I remember started drinking, I started drinking Maker's Mark with Diet Coke because that's how I started, I guess. And it just, I got, I had a taste for it, and I started putting less and less of the Diet Coke <laughs> in there and more and more of just having the whiskey. And then these smaller distilleries started coming around and it started to become a thing. So I started looking into, you know, a different product and um, finding different flavor profiles and just got really interested in the process, the fact that this isn't an instant thing. You 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 make a, a spirit, but then you have to put it in a barrel and, and wait. So I started get, getting interested in that whole, you know, from the very beginning, like how how does whiskey become whiskey? Yeah. This is going to be the weird question of the day, at least the first. <laughs> I am the biggest lightweight. I have no taste for liquor at all. Can you describe to me, I mean, what is it that you find enchanting about the taste of whiskey? I really like, there's a few things in the flavor profile that I enjoy. I enjoy the oaky wood flavor. And you're going to get that very strongly in whiskey because of the way the barrels are prepared. But I also enjoy some of the spice. You get a lot of fall spices uh, flavor profile in there. And then also some sweetness, some butterscotch, caramel, vanilla. And they all, in some in some instances, you're getting all of that in, in one swallow. And I enjoy all of it. I mean, the couple of times like that I've had whiskey and I can't tell you what whiskey it was or I mean, it was a $5 whiskey or a $100 whiskey. It just tasted like paint thinner. 
Yes. But you can get those different, what sound like really wonderful tastes mm-hmm. out, out of a good whiskey, I suppose. Yes. And you know, if you're just having it neat, you you know want to think about, is it, a, is it a rye? Is it a bourbon? Is it a weeded bourbon? And what you might be more interested, you might want to start something a little bit sweeter to get started. You might look at the proof, like how hot is this? Is it 116 proof, which is really, really alcoholic or maybe you start with something a bit lower proof or make, have a mixer make a cocktail something that's gonna you're, you still get the taste profile but kind of blends in with some other flavors that you might enjoy so you started looking into like the processes uh, of, of making whiskey was there an aha moment or maybe like an aha trip of some kind where you're like wait a second <laughs> I might be good at this, and I would really like to do this. Well, to start, I'm going to try not to get lost in my answer and actually answer that question. But to start, I spoke with my husband about let's brainstorm and find something that I'm I'm passionate about because my my passion for medicine dwindled to a disenchantment, and I struggled with it for over a decade. And I was always looking for a plan B, and which now I call a second act because I can put that into the theme of my my brand. That's right. That's um, right. Looking for the second act, and it wasn't the first time I was looking for something. But we're brainstorming. This was about five years ago, and whiskey, you know, rose to the top of the list. And I had been interested in wine in the past. That whole process, it's it's art and science meet. So is whiskey, art and science meeting. And I'm fascinated by that. And so, you know, we're an hour and a half from Louisville. So we Googled, can you learn how to, is there a place to go to learn how to make whiskey? And sure enough, there is. There's a place called Moonshine University in Louisville, Kentucky, that has all kinds of classes from how to produce whiskey or and other spirits, the business side, um, how to age your product, how to get it to market. Like there's one to six day courses um, down there. So I started taking all my vacation days and going to Louisville to take classes. Oh, like multiple times then. Multiple <clears throat> times. I've taken yeah. most of their classes. They joke that I'm one of their most prolific <laughs> class takers <laughs> that they've ever had. That's part of my personality as well. Just dive right in. Um, but I think during the, I think it was like a five or six day course all about production of whiskey. So we started where we learned about it in the classroom, but we went into the distillery that they have on site. And we went, we started with milling the grains. And at the end, we distilled and we actually even put it into a barrel. And then we could take a bottle home. Of course, it's been, it was in the barrel for like two hours. <laughs> but right. the process was very cool. And the aha moment that I, had was this is very similar to baking and cooking, which I love to do. And then I make it for someone and give it to them with love. And I love to watch them enjoy it. Um, And so I thought this is giving, I haven't even given it to anyone, but this gives me that same feeling of like, I'm producing something with love, with attention to detail, to make something wonderful at the end. And then I want people to, to enjoy it. Yeah. Okay. And but when was that? When did you kind of make up your mind? About twenty eighteen. Mm-hmm. Okay. When was your last day as a practicing anesthesiologist? It was March thirty first, twenty twenty. Very difficult time. Yeah. <laughs> Obviously, I had turned in my notice. I'd had hip surgery, and I was home uh, rehabbing. And we just decided that maybe this was the time for me to get off the call schedule. We were already going to do this company, the whiskey company. I'm also an acupuncturist, and I had an opportunity to do that for a couple days a week. So I was going to turn in my notice, get off the call schedule, and work for the my group as a you know contractor one to two days a week until you know the whiskey matured and the the company you know, was off and running and then COVID hit. So when COVID hit and my contract ended, so I I worked two, three weeks during COVID and then my contract was up and even my partners that still had contracts weren't getting work Mm -hmm. for months. And so, you know, all the elective surgeries were canceled for a very long time. And so that just kind of ended my career a little bit faster than I even planned. Mm -hmm. Okay. 
Uh, do you miss it? I miss some things about it. I still identify as a physician. I sometimes worry about losing my skills, but in general, it it's a part of me. I'm I'm a physician. I'm an anesthesiologist. I think about the world in the way of health all the time. But what I miss is the patient care. I miss the procedures. I miss some of the camaraderie, you know, going to work and seeing people. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, But the the big medicine complex, I don't miss. Yeah. So what is it now that is exciting you about what you're doing? I mean, what is gratifying about making whiskey for a living and, and not just, you know, the crafting of it, but really just being an entrepreneur and all the things you need to do for the business? Well, I think it's really fascinating. It's very gratifying to start with an idea. And then now I have a product on the shelf. And, you know, friends and family are like, I saw your 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 rye at, you know, this place, or I had some of your rye. And I, you know, it, it's just, it's amazing to me. And I learned so much about I'm about the process and what it takes to get a product of any kind on the shelf. It's almost kind of amazing to me that anything ever makes it <laughs> on the shelf because there's so many moving parts and so many things that have to line up to get there. The creativity, the work, the following up, the relationships you have to make, other people doing their job so that you know, our our stuff can actually come to fruition. Um, it's it's very humbling and very it was very educational and I'm in awe of people that that do this kind of thing. Do you drop by like one of the stores, for example, that sells the rye just to see what it looks like on the shelf? Well, I've been to a few of the bars and yeah. of course I order a Manhattan <laughs> with my product. Yes. Ex- yeah, I've yeah. done that. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I would be tempted to go into like, you know, Crown Liquor yes. and to see where it is on the shelf. And I would probably reposition it on the <laughs> shelf several times, making sure that it's, you know, lined up correctly. The uh, light hits it just right. Just right. Exactly right. <laughs> they turned it three degrees this way. Yeah. We were talking before uh, we started recording that I imagine like of every 100 people who consider themselves whiskey aficionados, at least 50 of them probably think at some point, I would like to do this. Now, the difference here is that you did it. And you were talking about all the little steps in the process. And we probably can't get into all of them. But I want to get a sense of how you launched the company, how you built it. I assume you had to do at least a good amount of research, though it sounds like you you picked up a lot of some of the basics from, uh, from the Whiskey University. Yes, Moonshine University, not only do they have classes, but they consider you a colleague from the very beginning. And they're very, very open about teaching what you need to learn and getting you connected with people in the business, people that you would think are kind of untouchable. I've had access to through Moonshine University. They're very, very well connected. They get students from all over the world which is amazing to me. And and they do teach, you know, there's a rum course and there's gin and, you know, other other spirits as well. But what they've done down there is is pretty amazing. And they're right in the heart of, of whiskey country. And so I, I've interviewed some people that, you know, I didn't think I'd ever be able to speak with. Mm-hmm. And they'll, you know, they're very open, a lot of camaraderie in the whiskey uh, world in Kentucky. And yes, we also did a lot of research. My husband, luckily, he's a business guy. He, I joke that he dreams in Excel spreadsheets and he likes to make (laughs) (laughs) business plans. And that's like a hobby almost, you know, he really enjoys that. And so I could not be here if it weren't for his expertise and his, he not only crunches the numbers and, lets me know what we we where we're going and what you know we need to do in that department but he also has done this before not not in the whiskey world but in other worlds and so he's much more comfortable with the discomfort of it mm, right and he's pushed me to expand my mind about what I'm capable of doing how to do it 
he makes really good decisions. Just he knows a lot about a lot of things. And so even like when we're working with our marketers and PR, I'm surprised at what he knows and what he picks up that I'm not picking up Mm. as far as social media. He's not even on social media, (laughs) (laughs) but he seems to know like what, what people need to see. So he's got, he's got this knack for it. So if it weren't for him, I wouldn't be here. And his his role in the company, his specific role is CFO. Is that right? Or I think for sure. Yes. I'm not sure that's, I think president is what, you know, we did officially for his title, but he's CFO for sure. Okay. Great. So yeah. I mean, this is not a solo show. I mean, that you are leaning on him for a lot of different tools. Yes. And what's great is he, he gets, he does those things, which he enjoys, but I get to do, you know, the fun research where I, I was able to make my own whiskey recipes and I'm, you know, on site for blending and bottling and I'm on site for uh, distillation and I get to do the fun distillery things that, (laughs) that I want to do. Does he continue to do maybe what he was doing before in addition to working with Fortune's Fool? For lack of a better term, I mean, does he have a day job? A little bit. Okay. He, uh, so he started a, a business in, I think it was 2006, with a, a partner in Wisconsin, and they um, were acquiring and operating dental practices. And they sold the majority share a couple of years ago. He's still on the board. And does some in that realm. And then he's been exploring some other business opportunities. They still own a real estate company associated with uh, their dental company that they sold. And then he works with our business. So he seems to be quite busy. He keeps himself really busy. (laughs) I guess what I was getting at was, I mean, not everybody can sort of drop what they were doing. Right. um, And just take up a new profession. Right. So, um, but it sounds like, I mean, between you and your husband, you're already pretty well funded and, and he continues to bring in revenue yes. for the family. So Yes. Yes. Because <laughs> so, so I haven't been. <laughs> the money part is, is covered pretty well. Yes. Okay. Walk me through very quickly just the process of making whiskey. I know you need grains. Yes. And a classic bourbon or whiskey, I guess, is three grains. It's corn rye and malted barley um, and there's a, a rye is if it's 51% or more rye a bourbon is 51% or more corn and then there's a couple other specifications that you have to have to be called bourbon but it's not uh, geographical and then a weeded bourbon you take the rye out and it's wheat corn and malted barley and it's much, it's usually mm. much sweeter and then there's some people that are doing four grain or they put mm. all four grains together. So I'm, I'm just guessing here. So the quality, the distinctiveness of your bourbon would depend on the percentages of each item. That is one factor. Um, the, the ingredients, like how you source it, where you source it from. Another factor. Okay. Yes. <laughs> so it's, uh, this is a, such a dumb question. Are there actually spices? No. Okay. No spices. That's all no. coming from the grain. All coming from the grain. There's also yeast that can play, a, will play a role in the flavor profile. And actually, the barrel plays a role. 60 to 80% of the flavor comes from the barrel and the right. barrel's interaction with the whiskey. Gotcha. Let's talk about the barrels real quick because I know that that is very specifically a calling card. Yes. Uh, for you guys, tell me about your barrels. Our barrels are produced in Napa, California, in at Seguin Moreau. It's a cooperage that started in Cognac, France a long time ago. They built a factory in Napa, which is, it was Cognac barrels and wine barrels. So when they built a factory in Napa, California, that makes sense. There's a a lot of wine down there, over there. And about 15 years or so ago, they started making bourbon barrels. And they just do it a little bit differently than your standard whiskey barrel cooperage they the trees that they use are usually older and bigger which can help with leakage and flavor profile the way they build the barrel with the joints is a little bit different there's less loss there's less leakage there as well which helps with you know your yield which is nice 
And then they do very old school barrel production where it's all by hand over oak fire. So when they're making the barrel and they have to bend the staves to bend it into the barrel and put the rings around it, they use oak fire to heat the the, the wood instead mm. of steam. Um, wow. So it's not just the quality of the wood of the barrel. It's the quality of the wood that is burned <laughs> to season the barrel. Yes. Wow. Okay. And so when they char and toast the barrel also, it's only over oak fire. They don't use gas, which gas is very commonly used. And then I s- kind of skipped a step. The wood, once it's cut from the forest, sits in open air for 24 months, mm. the barrel that we that we buy. And what that's doing is it's getting – it's being weathered. There's a whole process there. It's very detailed. It's more than just sitting – sitting there but there's different barrel qualities you can buy where it's 18 month or 12 month and the industry standard is somewhere below nine months and because i was just at a tour and they were boasting that it was air dried for nine months ours is air dried for 24 months and that does make a difference in the ability for the whiskey to interact with the wood when it's when it's aging so you have a solution that comes out of uh combining all the all the grains, uh, and you add the yeast and all that, you come up with, is that the distilling process? Is that what we call distilling? So you you gra- you mill the grains just to, to break it up into smaller pieces, and you cook it to break it up even more. And then you f- add yeast, you put it, you cool it down, you put it in a, a big vat, and you add yeast, and the yeast eat the, the carbohydrate chains that have been broken down and create alcohol Mm, and carbon dioxide and then so basically you have a beer and then you take that product and you put it run it through a still and that's just removing water and other chemicals that you don't want in your product and you can separate the alcohol out from all those other products with the steam and the the what is volatile what boils at certain temperatures so you can separate everything out and keep what you want to keep. And then that's your distillate. And then you put that into the barrel. In the barrel. Yeah. So everyone who produces whiskey has a has a decision to make. What kind of barrel am I going to use? And there is a wide variety, I'm guessing. There's a wide variety. As, as you've been describing. I mean, mm-hmm. uh, you know, the, based on what kind of wood it is, um, how it was uh, seasoned or charred. Uh, how long it was, was set out to dry, what it was charred with. I mean, there's lots of variation. And and that you say is really, I mean, at least like 50% of the flavor comes from that. Upwards of like 80%. Wow. And, and 100% of the color, so all color of all about the barrels comes from the barrel. That's crazy. I'm yeah. sorry I didn't know that. I mean, but again, I'm sorry. I am a complete neophyte when it comes to uh, to liquor. So, and you guys, as you say, obviously made a very uh, intentional decision to go is, is it, should we say high end? I mean, is that? Yes. We're, we're calling it wine grade bourbon barrel because of the, they're more meticulous about how they build the barrel from like choosing the wood, what type of wood they're using and how the joints are put together. It's a, it, the entire process is wine grade. There's less knots in the wood that can be acceptable in a lot of standard whiskey barrels and that all plays into the quality of the product and so yes we're buying we're this is a an investment we're making an investment in a higher quality barrel to have a higher quality product on the other side and you know we're lucky also that it the flavor profile tastes more aged at a younger age because it's it's less tannic, it's less stringent than you than you would like if, if we put that same product, which is a super high quality distillate, into a different barrel, it's still going to take taste harsh at under three years of age. And ours does not. Is is that your biggest upfront investment, the barrels? Probably yes. Yeah. Yeah. And it, you know, we're paying Two to three times more than than 
average for a barrel. Wow. How many barrels did you buy? So currently we're aging uh, 815 barrels. And um, we actually didn't produce last year because we couldn't get the barrels we needed. There was a little bit of a wood shortage, COVID-related kind of issues. Um, And we chose, uh, you know, it's the best or nothing with us. So we chose to not produce until we had these barrels um, available again. So we'll be producing a minimum of 300 barrels in the spring. Okay, let's take a quick break so we can hear from our sponsor. This is the IBJ Podcast. Taft, today's modern law firm, with more than 800 attorneys in eight primary Midwest markets and the District of Columbia, we provide solutions to the business issues facing middle market and emerging companies alike. We do this through a highly collaborative and inclusive team approach. Taft, the modern law firm. To learn more, visit taftlaw.com. All right, we're back with this week's edition of the IBJ Podcast and our interview with Juliet Schmaltz of Fortune's Fool Whiskey. So the the distillation process, you're not doing this in your garage. No. <laughs> no that takes place down in Kentucky? Yes. So you have a contract with somebody who does that for you based on your specifications? Yes. So there's a couple, there's three ways you can you can be a whiskey producer. One, you can source whiskey, meaning you can go somewhere and buy a barrel that someone else produced and has aged and it has a market price and you can buy it and you can blend it or just put it in a bottle and call it your own. And that's perfectly legal. And a lot of people do it, especially early on, because it's an aged product. And if you're building a distillery You usually have to start paying the bank back for your loan before three, four years down the road when your product's ready. Or you have to make an unaged product so you can start, you know, generating revenue. Um, So they're sourcing. And I didn't want to do that because I felt like, well, that's like buying a pie at the store and giving it to friends and having them eat it versus (laughs) making the pie. pie. (laughs) (laughs) So I wanted to make my pie. Right. And the other thing is build a distillery. And our original plan was to build a distillery. We even were looking at buildings. But then it's like, well, you have to learn another spirit probably to do an unaged product and sell that. And I felt like we're losing our focus. Our focus is whiskey. And and I want to know as much about this and do as great of a job as I can in this one thing. Instead of being a jack of all trades, I wanted to just focus on the one thing I'm passionate about. So we're going with the the middle option, which is uh, contract distilling. So we found um, a very well-known, very great producer in Kentucky. A lot of them do this where they contract distill. They own the equipment. I tell them, will you make this for me at these specifications? They produce it for me. I've got my barrel, uh, my cooperage. They're producing, they're toasting and charring the barrels that I bought for under my specifications. They send it over. It's filled up. And it's it's stored. Yeah. So where do the barrels go? Currently, they're being stored in a uh, rick house in Lexington, Kentucky. Okay. So your first product, tell me about that. It just came out. I mean, a couple of weeks ago. About that, three weeks ago. <clears throat> now, and that's I the think. rye. And yes. that and that had been in barrels for three years. Just under three years. Okay. Thirty-two months was when we uh, bottled. It's so it's a rye. It's uh, rice. Rice tend to. Be, have a better flavor profile earlier than than the bourbon and the wheat of bourbon, which we just knew we would wait at least four years for those products. And they're all about to turn three. So we've got another year for a bourbon product. But this rye is called the Prelude. And we did that because, again, because of COVID, there's bottle shortages, glass shortages. We have a custom bottle that's really beautiful, but it's not going to be ready until about a year from now. And we didn't want to wait that long to release our first product. So we worked with our marketers on something that's going to be like an introduction to our brand. So it's called The Prelude, an opening act from Fortune's Fool. And it's all tying into the theme of Fortune's Fool, which is all based on William Shakespeare's Romeo and Juliet because of my name. There you go. That's right. And it's uh, Romeo, I think, says I am Fortune's Fool. Yes. I think when he, uh, after he kills Tybalt. Yes. I think so. Okay. How, how familiar were you with Romeo and Juliet just growing up and as an adult? 
well, I, I know I read it when yeah. I was a freshman in high school. <laughs> and then I know that I can't count how many times people have asked me where Romeo was because, oh, no. you know, my That's name is Juliet. Yes. <laughs> I was telling someone this. I have the trifecta. I have red hair, freckles, and my name is Juliet. So yeah, for real. Lots of tease factors there. Um, Does your husband have to put up with the Romeo stuff? No, I don't get it anymore. Oh, that's good. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Thank goodness. So I wasn't terribly familiar. You know, I I'm familiar with the general gist of it. I had to read it again when we decided to go with this. This is our theme um, for our, for a brand. Yeah, it's very clever. I mean, because you have like you have this whole sort of like allegory infrastructure, you know, where you have like like as you're smartly doing. I mean, playing off of the idea of acts and uh, you know classical themes and characters, and so I mean, you know, your marketing folks have got to be like, oh, this is a dream. They are very talented and very excited. At least. They tell us they're very excited <laughs> about – I think a lot of their friends are jealous that they're working on the, the whiskey company's uh, – what do you call it? Contract? That's not the right word, but working yeah, with with working with a whiskey company. Mm. And, yeah, I think they're pretty excited. And I can't say enough good things. It's Pivot Marketing here in Indianapolis. Ryan has produced uh, a lot a lot of the, the beauty of our bottle and the label and just – They've helped build this this theme, and like everything is is on on brand. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm only fifty percent kidding, but I'm fifty percent kidding, but only fifty percent kidding. <laughs> Did you at any point try to work like the doctor angle or the anesthesiologist angle, like Doctor Schmaltz's uh, knockout concoction or <laughs> whatever? That actually is not allowed. Um, <gasps> no. Yeah, the federal. TTB, the federal government that controls like your labels, they would not allow anything that seems like it's a prescription or it's going to tell you that you're going, something's going to get better if you drink this. Yeah, they would have nixed that very quickly. Um, yeah, we talked about it as a joke, <laughs> but we knew that that, <laughs> okay. was, that was a no-go <laughs> okay. area, yeah. Now, in the meantime, you have more product in barrels that is maturing. What, what is coming up? So we have a bourbon that will be four years in January of 25, which we plan to introduce in our custom bottle. And uh, we tasted it at two years and couldn't believe how good it was. And so it's going to be two years older even. Um, I've got to get a sample of that again because we're almost at three years and I just have to see how it's progressing. And then in January 26, we'll have a four-year weeded bourbon. And it may or may not be ready at four years. It's the one that takes the longest to yield a good flavor. And so we won't release anything until it tastes like it's ready to be released. But those are our three mash bills. And this goes back to what we're talking about, about – I mean, delayed gratification. I mean, where you, where you you start, you have a product, but it's I mean, it needs to basically sit in a in a storage facility for three years before you can do anything with it. Yes. So over over that time, what are the kinds of things that you've been doing? I mean, to to get the product on the shelves. I mean, I, I can't even imagine all the things that you needed to be doing while you were waiting for everything to mature. Well, one thing I learned at Moonshine University was whatever you're spending on marketing, it's not enough. <laughs> Spend well, more. Okay. And so because if people don't know you're out there, it's hard to sell a product. And so that stuck with me. And, and Steve, my husband, knows that as well. So we've been working really hard with the mar- marketing and PR area of our marketing company. We were looking for a social media company that will help us uh, advertise on social media. And then we were literally taking our single barrel samples since we didn't have our blend yet or what our product exactly was going to be. And we were going to liquor stores and bars and asking bartenders and managers to taste it. And, you know, we'd give them several samples because each each individual barrel gives you a different flavor profile. So I'd give them a couple so they can get an idea of what, what it's going to taste like. And uh, we start working with bartenders around town, um, asking them to make a, a cocktail 
either a, a rendition of a, a, a common cocktail or like their own cocktail with our product, which we feature on our website right now. And we um, continue, we'll continue to, to grow that just to get our name out there, get our excitement out there. People responded very well to our single barrel samples. And then when it came time to to blend, then we took our blend around before it was even bottled and ready. And just kind of, you know, hit the ground uh, running and tried to get as many people hearing our name and tasting our product that can help us with selling our product. Again, I don't know much about the industry. I know that there are distributors that, you know, the I see the big trucks. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I see them parked outside of liquor stores and they go everywhere. At some point, do you call up a distributor and say, hey, would, be, would you be willing to sell this or you know, put this on your shelves? Yes. So we we spoke with um, our distributors are is Carol Wine and Spirits. Um, they distribute to Indiana. So that's where we're distributing mm-hmm. right now. We spoke with them first, maybe right after we barreled. So a while back before we had product we went and spoke with them. Uh, another thing I've learned from Steve is, you know, don't email, don't text. You either call them, you show up in person. It's much more personal. And he's right. Yeah. So we did that a while ago. And then when it came time to like, we're getting closer and we needed to have someone, you know, willing to distribute our product, then we took them some samples and we've we've been honing this relationship for a while. Mm. But- in addition to that, you still need to do a sales job. I mean, almost like at a bar by bar or store by store basis. Yes. To get them to get them to request it, I suppose. Yes, and so we presented our product to all the salespeople at Carol, told our story, had them taste it, and then been, I've been following up with them. And one salesman let me spend the day with him, going on calls. And he continues to be very interactive. There's another one that's having me do all kinds of tastings. My first, I'm pouring at a um, Crown Liquors uh, Humane Society event this evening. It'll be the first time I'm I'm pouring a product. And I'll be doing that like twice to three times a week until Christmas. (laughs) And it's fun because then I can get out there and, and talk about the brand. I'm not a salesperson in any way, shape, or form, but funny how when it's your product and it's something you're passionate about and you know it's good, it's so much, it's so easy to talk about it and actually be a salesperson. So, yeah, I don't think you would want to be too much of a salesperson. I mean, I think, I mean, people are looking for something that feels authentic, right. especially I, like in a, in a higher end and smaller batch yes. situation. I mean, they yeah. kind of, it, it's almost as, as important, I gather, just to have a good story. To tell. Yes. And people are relating to my story because, you know, one of the first things with the marketers is like, we got, what's your story? And um, I tell them my story and they're like, well, that's really interesting. And I'm like, it is? (laughs) (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Okay. And, you know, people are responding to it. And I do think I've had a lot of people say to me, oh my God, I have dreamed about this, but you actually did it. And especially in medicine. Like I know a lot of people in medicine that are wishing they could find a way to to get out and it's not easy. I mean, it took me 14 years to get, to Mm. get out and a lot of renditions of like, well, maybe I'll do this. And, you know, wasn't working out. So I'm lucky that, you know, it was like a perfect storm of, of great things that um, made this company able to not only get me out of, of a job that I didn't Mm. want to do anymore, but be able to be hopefully successful and, and passionate about it and enjoy it. So you, I mean, for the last five years have been spending, spending and spending money. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Lots of money going yes. out. And yes. then just, I guess in the last few weeks, there's a maybe a little bit of money trickling. Can you, for people who are interested in maybe doing this, can you give them a sense of what are the startup costs before you can expect to have something, something even in the store? Well, or just I mean, what, however, how much you guys were, had to invest? Well, in 2018, when we were interested in a, a distillery, now we were going, you know, we're keeping to our theme of we're doing it the best or nothing. Uh, we were quoted at about 11 million for the distillery we wanted to to stand up to um, 
to stand build up and build a story. Yes. And that was in 2018. So Holy you can memory. imagine what it would be today, maybe. So th this is a good, the the contract distilling way is good. There's no overhead, really. And so we're just paying experts to do their segment of of the job. I don't have the exact numbers. I would say we do have investors that have invested a million in total. And then we have probably that much of our own invested as well, if not a little more. Okay. Yeah. So you've put at least $2 million into this already. Yeah. Okay. And then do you have any sense of like when you are able to recoup your investment? I mean, it's impossible to know the future, speaking of fortune. <laughs> um, but uh, is this just a lot of like cross fingers and, and hoping that it's going to begin to pay for itself and then generate some kind of income? Well, I do think you you can't predict things like COVID yeah. and things like that that can really affect any business and you know how long that's going to affect it. But I think with the business plan that we've had in place from the beginning, it was very thoughtful, um, a lot of research, a lot of discussions with other people that do business plans with whiskey companies. We knew we were going to keep it small and high quality and our plan is not to turn into a 24-7, we're cranking out whiskey, you know, three shifts of producing. And then, you know, make sure you have a solid story and a lot of passion. And the, the end-all, be-all, the bottom line is quality. And so every decision we make is, is this going to create the best product we can? And if it's not, then we don't do it. And so we think that's a solid plan because if you have a, a very solid product and a good story and enthusiastic owners and you know, marketers and people, you know, we have a fantastic blender and our distillers are great. And so if we keep these relationships up and we're all coming together to make this really great product, I think, you know, to the best of our ability to predict the future – I think we have a very solid plan. Okay. They always talk about runway. I mean, do you, do you feel like, I mean, you, you certainly have product in route <laughs> to to reality for a few years. I mean, do, are you well-funded enough, have enough access to capital to keep going for that amount of time, at least two or three more years? Yes. And, um, and we will, the intention is to produce every year as well. And it was a you know, anomaly that we weren't able to get the wood that we needed to produce the barrels. But we're we're really nurturing our relationship with Chris Hansen at Segwin Moreau. He's the general manager there. He's the person that we're trying to create a relationship with to continue. He knows that, you know, our our company is found the foundation is his barrel. And so we need to nurture that relationship. And he understands that. So what is your next year like? The next year? Yeah. I assume the product that we have, we have 2,300 bottles. Maybe this was a 10-barrel blend. We've sold, in three weeks, we've sold close to a third of that, I think. And, you know, it, it takes a little while to get it rolled out. Like, I'm become very impatient. Like, I, you know, I want it in the stores. And, you know, some stores take a while to get on the shelf. And then once it's on the shelf... We have to be able to know it's on the shelf to tell our customers it's on the shelf. So I do think once it starts picking up steam, we'll, we will sell out before we have our next product. So our plan is to bottle a three-year rye in the spring, and that may be a similar size release. And then we may do another one in the fall just to kind of bridge the gap between the prelude, what we have right now, and our our flagship or four-year product. And then we'll also have a four-year rye in 2025. So we can do two separate releases of two separate products once we get to next, the following year. So we'll do, we'll, we'll try to keep product on the shelf to keep customers happy. Um, we're also going to distribute to a couple other places than just Indiana. And we'll have some merchandise and we're working on making bourbon balls with our product and, you know, some some fun things that can help generate some revenue and excitement around the brand. Okay, great. Well, this definitely calls for 
us checking in here in a couple more years. Do you have any anything like in the back room, like like a like a really like long term play? Like you have like a ten year whiskey eight years from now, or are you really just sticking to three four? No, we your products totally intend to. You know, we wanted to get something out as soon as it was good enough to yeah. be bottled. For sure, because, you know, eventually you do need to generate some revenue. But the plan is to hold some of each year's product back so that we'll have, I would say with a rye, I wouldn't go over maybe 10 years, probably maybe even younger, eight, hang around at seven, eight years for rye. And then bourbon, I think 12 years, about the sweet spot. I don't need to go older than that. They tend to start to fall off after about 15. It's not like scotch. You know, yeah. scotch can sit for decades and that's and bourbon's a different animal. So yes, we we will have older and older products released every year. Right on. Okay, well, we will check back in and see how it goes. Thank you so much for sharing the story. Thank you. Thank you so much. My thanks again to Juliet Schmaltz. And folks, before you get on with the rest of your week, There are a few stories in the latest issue of IBJ I want to draw to your attention. First up, the Indianapolis Metropolitan Police Department is poised to invest $9 million in COVID-19 recovery funds into more video cameras and other surveillance technology. Taylor Wooten reports that some critics are raising privacy concerns, while police say the tools are helpful amid their staffing shortage. Also in this week's issue, Peter Blanchard explores Curtis Hill's campaign for governor after the 2018 scandal that derailed his political career. Some political experts say conditions are conducive for a comeback by the former state attorney general. And Daniel Bradley reports on the rise of build-to-rent communities targeted to folks who want to rent single-family homes. And again, you can find these stories in the latest print edition of IBJ or online at ibj.com. And thanks again for making time for the IBJ podcast. I'm Mason King. Hang in there, everybody. We'll be back again next week.